0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Under Pressure, so let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, What to Do in the End Times.
1: The passage we're about to read today begins with the words, the end of all things is at hand. And then immediately after the paragraph we're studying today, we're going to read a sentence. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you. So let's put that in ways that we can easily understand in today's language. We're living in the end time, so it shouldn't surprise us if we're going through persecution. Now, please remember, however, that what we're reading was written approximately 2,000 years ago. So 2000 years ago, someone in this case, you know, the great Peter himself, wrote that we're in the end times, and so things are tough, and presumably, they might even get tougher. And don't be surprised, we're in the last days. Now, if we are in the end times, there seems to be only one thing to do, and that one thing, Whilst the whole prophecy conferences and describe how the next Roman emperor is going to be the last one and why the political developments in our world today mark the end of the age and so forth because that's what so many of us do today, don't we? And since Peter was off by at least 2,000 years, I mean, what do we make of that? So let's begin where Peter does. The end of all things is at hand, he says. Now, does he mean that the believers in his day were then just a very short while from the second coming of Jesus? Because if that's what he meant to say, we can now say with certainty, well, he's wrong. But if Peter was wrong in this, we need to admit that others who wrote the New Testament had exactly the same idea as Peter did. Romans 13, verse 11, Paul writes, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. You know, and the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 10:25, as you see the day drawing near, and James 5, 8 and 9 says, the Lord's coming is near. He even says that the judge is standing at the door. And finally, John in 1 John 2, verse 8 says, this is the last hour. So that's a theme that we find running through the entire New Testament. So let's just assume, shall we, that the writers of the New Testament are not wrong? And if they weren't wrong, then... What did they mean when they said that we're living in the end times? See, the language of the New Testament only seems strange to us if we seek to understand it in the way that people use language today. See, the end times, the way that we use the phrase today, means that we're standing within a very short period of time when the second coming will be upon us. But the way the New Testament uses the phrase, well, that's different. See, the writers of the New Testament were ever mindful of the fact that Jesus, while in his earthly incarnate form, did not know the day of his second coming. And so his followers also assumed they didn't know that day either. So when they spoke about the last days or the end of all things, well, they did think they were living in the last days. They meant that all the major events in God's redemptive timetable had already occurred, and now nothing was standing in the way of Christ returning a second time. So think of it this way. You know, sometimes in prophecy conferences today, we hear people talk about the end times in terms of what's happening in our world today. And they're going to say things like, I mean, did you know? That technology is now developed in such a way so that now for the first time in history, it's possible to give everyone a mark so they won't be able to buy and sell throughout the world without having that mark. And did you know that computers now track everyone? And did you also know that Russia is soon going to invade Israel? And did you know that when Israel came back to the promised land, well, the prophetic clock started ticking? You see, that's how we think of end times today. But did you also know that the writers of the New Testament never thought in those terms? They weren't looking at the global situation to see where they were on the redemptive timetable. Rather, they were looking at God's actions of redemption in history. And so they would have said, what are the acts of redemption that God has already completed? Well, God has completed the creation. That was followed by the fall. Then God called Abraham and through that chosen nation, salvation would come to the world. Then Abraham's family did become a nation that God spoke about, and then they would need to be redeemed out of slavery, sent to the Promised Land, and after that Israel would become a nation, and David would become its king, and then a promise would be given that the Messiah would be a descendant of David and sit on David's throne. Well, then came the Babylonian captivity, and then came return from the captivity, and then Jesus, the long-expected Messiah, was born. And in the fullness of time, he would preach the kingdom of God. He would die on a cross. He'd be raised from the dead. He'd ascend into heaven. The Holy Spirit would be poured out on the church. And now, and now, listen, the gospel is being brought to the Gentiles. See, in short, the writers of the New Testament weren't looking at what was happening in the politics of the world. Rather, they were looking at what had happened in God's redemptive program. And they noticed that now. All things had been completed and all that was now left was that Jesus would return. Of course, they didn't know when it would be, but they did know it would now occur at any time. And yeah, from that perspective, from their perspective, they were right in saying that we're living in the end times. And so knowing that the end of all things is at hand, that is to say, knowing that the next great event in God's redemptive timetable was the second coming of Jesus, Christians needed to know what to do. And interestingly, they didn't warn people that the next Roman government would be the last one or that Russia would soon invade or that new military technology now made it possible for the Antichrist to finally come. That's not what they did. They didn't hold prophetic conferences at all. I mean, after all, why should they? They knew they were living at a time when the last days were upon them. So let's find out what they did do. I'm reading here 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, since the end of all things is at hand, believers need to do five things. And today, we're going to cover what four of those things are. Number one, this has to do with the attitude that believers should have in the present hour. And here, Peter gives us two very important attitudes. The first is be self-controlled. I mean, some translators actually translate that word as be sane. I guess we could say, don't get crazy. I mean, the Greek word means you have to have an understanding about practical matters and so be able to act sensibly. Be practical. Act in accordance with the concerns that are before you. The word could also be translated, have sound judgment." You know, it's interesting that Paul uses the opposite of this word when he was addressing Festus in Acts 26 when he says, I'm not mad, most excellent Festus. That is, I'm not crazy. In other words, I'm self-controlled. This is great advice. You know, if you knew that Christ was coming back tomorrow, how would you act? Answer, don't get crazy. Act sanely. Use good judgment. Don't develop conspiracy theories. Instead, go about your business seeking common sense. Uh, The second attitude that Peter insists Christians have in the present hour is that they should be sober-minded. You know, in a way, this is simply another way of saying what we've already said, that we're supposed to act sanely. I mean, think about the opposite of sober-mindedness. Well, that would be drunken-mindedness, inebriated thinking, out of control. In other words, Peter says, control your thought life. And then Peter adds something that might surprise us. He commends these attitudes of thinking so that he says, we can pray. Now here we might think about, you know, the fact that back in chapter 3, verse 7, Peter warned husbands that if they're not considerate towards their wives, their prayers are going to be hindered. But here in our section today, Peter is concerned about the thought life of a believer as he or she prays. And interestingly enough, Peter puts prayer in the plural. See, he assumes that we're praying all of the time. But Peter wants Christians to be praying intelligently. Pray intelligently as you pray about everything. Look, I have no doubt that the believers that Peter was writing to, of course they were concerned about politics in Rome because that would have affected their freedom. And no doubt they prayed about the attitudes of their neighbors because that affected the way in which they'd be treated in their own cities. Were some believers already in prison? Well, if they were, no doubt other believers were praying about that. And all the while, they're conscious that the coming of the Lord is at hand. It could happen, they thought, at any moment. But, and this seems to be at the heart of Peter's concern, as you're constantly praying about so many things, remember also to pray avoiding all the crazy theories or getting caught up in some movement based on pure conjecture. Pray wisely, pray rationally, think clearly as you pray. Above all, know God's will, that is, know that God wants you to act in holiness in all situations.
0: We've all been guilty of taking for granted that God's word is always the perfect word and available to us at all times. That's why we wanted to share with you an amazing book that will surely lift your thinking towards Bible reading for the better. It's called Before You Open Your Bible by Matt Smithhurst. In this insightful resource, you'll find wisdom and guidance on how to approach your Bible with a positive mindset so you get the most out of your time in His Word. And because the message in this book is in sync with the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, we're making this resource available as a gift free during the month of July. Simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your copy for free today.
1: I've been talking about four attitudes Peter calls believers to have, given that the coming of Jesus could happen at any time. So let's look at the second of these. It's found in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And here again, we find Peter is concerned that believers love one another. See, back in chapter 1, verse 22, he spoke about sincere brotherly love, and then he added, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And by the way, in his second letter, that is in 2 Peter 1, verse 7, Peter mentions love as one of a series of attitudes that will keep believers from being ineffective in their lives. But here in our passage today, did you notice he said, above all, keep love for one another, above all. Perhaps Peter was thinking about Jesus' words that are recorded in Matthew 22, in which Jesus said that love is the fulfillment of the law. You see, above all, that's quite a phrase, wouldn't you say? You know, I say that because so many little things and sometimes so many big things can cause Christians to stop loving each other. And since Peter is talking about living in the last days, you know, from our perspective today, well, it seems to me that some of our end time theories have really put a seed of suspicion rather than love between us. So let's talk about end times. But when we do, above all, we're committed as Christians to love each other above all. And then Peter adds another word at the end of that phrase. Above all, love one another, and then he uses the word earnestly. You know, in the Greek, just like in English, that word refers to a degree of intensity. But in the Greek, it also adds to it the idea of unceasing. We're committed never to stop loving and to look for ways to do it more intensely. And then Peter adds something that I'll bet perhaps you've said, or perhaps you've heard other people say, love covers A multitude of sins. See, Peter's telling us that when the atmosphere is filled with love, that love is able to overlook, sweep away a number of things that would have been a problem if love hadn't been there. Let's see if we can try to think of some applications of that principle. Think of how a rude comment sometimes divides believers or a thoughtless action. Or think about how it feels when you hear what someone else has said about you when you weren't there. It hurts doesn't it makes you angry you feel betrayed you feel abused and indeed there's no excuse for that kind of activity but then think how many times you've done the same thing and what would it take to tell your christian brother or sister hey look i know what you said about me and it really did hurt but how about we do this let's say that we forgive each other let's keep loving each other see when that happens Peace is purchased, love is increased, the power of sin to harm is taken away. And so Peter says, in light of the soon second coming of Jesus, think rationally, love deeply. Now we come to verse 8. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. See, it strikes me that when I read this verse, that showing hospitality, well, that must be the outgrowth of love. It is impossible to love and not want to be with someone else. Love demands relationships, time spent together. See, in our culture, this command to be hospitable, it's a difficult one. And that's because, see, a great many of us have taken to living private lives. And at the time I'm recording this, after a global pandemic, you know, it's come and gone. And during that time, we were being told to socially distance from one another. And all over the world, people, especially in the first world countries, began to live lives in isolation. And we feared one another's presence. So churches met online rather than in person, and I know it was important. But now I hear people say, well, they like it better that way. I mean, after all, you can watch church with a cup of coffee and in your pajamas. See, here's what I think. The global crisis didn't create the first world problem of living in isolation. It, however, shone a spotlight on a problem, and it has affected us in our churches. It's been now several decades, and we're growing increasingly alone. We don't have people over, at least not as much anymore. We meet people at church, but as far as relationship goes, well, we're used to cold crowds. We smile at each other. That's where relationship ends. But this isolation ends when hospitality begins. And when Peter tells us to exercise hospitality without grumbling, he means exercise hospitality without complaining about how much time this is eating up. So let's review. In the light of the soon return of Christ, be rational and reasonable people for the sake of your prayers. Be loving, practice hospitality. And then lastly, Peter gives some time to the practice of spiritual gifts. And unlike the list that Paul gives us, Peter divides all spiritual gifts into two categories, the speaking gifts and then the serving gifts. It's an interesting way of dividing spiritual gifts. I mean, what are spiritual gifts? Well, spiritual gifts are an endowment given by the Holy Spirit whereby we glorify Christ and serve one another. Because they're called gifts, we should assume that they're given apart from any merit or anything that we've done to deserve them. And because they come from the Holy Spirit, we also then have to assume that all the glory for the gifts goes to the giver, not to the one who uses the gift. So now, let's speak about their function. Peter begins with a statement, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. See, each has received a gift. You've received a gift if you're in Christ. And the purpose of your spiritual gift is not to show off your giftedness, but to serve someone else. Spiritual gifts then should cause us to have greater humility, not to place one person forward as superior to that of another. Gifts are meant to serve each other. And then Peter adds, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And I love that word, steward. You see, a steward was an ancient servant who oversaw property, the assets and the wealth of someone else. Therefore, in Peter's thinking, God has in his wisdom given each of his people at least one, perhaps more gifts, but at least one then God demands that each one should use that spiritual gift in a way that the master has designed it to be used. Notice also that Peter calls the spiritual gifts varied grace. That is, when the spiritual gifts are used in such a way that God's glorified and others are served, we see the various ways in which God cares for his people. Each time a gift is used, behind that gift is the giver, the one who has given it. And he showcases that he meets the needs of people. So let's start with the speaking gifts. When we read through the gift lists in Paul, we can think of a number of gifts that fall into that category. We can think of the gift of preaching, teaching, prophesying, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. We might even think of gifts of singing. See, in each of these examples, the mouth is used to bless the life of someone else in varied ways. See, notice that Peter has a word for those who have been giving speaking gifts. Whoever speaks, he said, should speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. (laughs) That seems overwhelming. I mean, after all, I've been a preacher for a great many years, and even though I've, I've tried to make sure that whenever I speak, I'm speaking accurately from the Scriptures, I can tell you this. I've not always been successful. At times, I have made mistakes. I have misspoken. At other times, I might not have understood the text entirely. And it's also likely that there have been times when I've gotten things wrong. I don't know where, but I assume that must be the case. How can I speak as one who speaks the oracles of God? See, I don't think that Peter assumes that a contemporary preacher or teacher always gets everything right, but it it must be the desire of those who exercise speaking gifts to get it right. They must not endeavor to give their own thoughts and ideas. Their task is to be biblical to what the Scripture says. See, over the years, I've met a great many gifted preachers, and some, you know, because of the gifts they have, have come to depend upon their own you know, clever abilities to communicate rather than to faithfully exegete Scripture. That is, they rely on their ability to move people rather than relying on their ability to be faithful to scripture. Peter then moves to the serving gifts. Whoever serves, he said, should do so in the strength that God supplies. That is, God will provide the strength to serve. The purpose of serving in God's strength is that God and not you is glorified. And so says Peter the coming of the Lord is at hand. All the redemptive events that must precede the coming of the Lord have taken place. We don't know when Christ is coming back, and maybe soon. What should we do? Be sane in your prayers, be loving, be hospitable. Use your spiritual gifts to serve others and to glorify God. So what does all that mean? Well, it means that if Christ comes back tomorrow, what's he gonna find you doing? He's gonna find you faithful in the Lord's business. And that's a word for all of us. Whether we're taken in death or whether we're alive at the Lord's coming, let's be about our master's business. It's a great lesson, especially today. If you knew that Christ was coming back tomorrow, may he find you at your station, busy doing the
0: things he assigned you to do. Thanks for your message, John. You know, I'm interested that the very thing uh, that should be bringing us together, the second coming of Christ, is actually the very thing that so many Christians seem to struggle with or, or causes disunity.
1: Yeah, I just—it's—it's it's a sad feature of today's world and in, in the church world. But I think we would be well served to recognize what aspects of the second coming are essential, and where are those aspects where honest Christians disagree with one another? We can hear each other out without getting our dander up. Uh, listen to one another and recognize that you know if it's the actual you know, timing of when the Lord comes back, before or after the tribulation, those kind of issues, well, you know, it's not a salvific issue. And when we get to heaven, we'll settle that matter. And I always say to people, you know, if I'm wrong about this matter, first round of coffee's on me in heaven.
0: Great stuff. I'll be looking forward to that coffee, by the way. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Under Pressure, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada has wrapped up the Israel Experience 2022 with a success like never before. Which is why we had no hesitation with jumping right into planning our Israel Experience 2023. The dates will be April 16th to the 24th with an optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. This trip is an opportunity to see and experience so many of the critical biblical sites you're so familiar with in the Bible. Like one guest said, we've been in ministry for nearly 40 years, read our Bibles through nearly every year, but this took it from 2D to 3D. If you'd like to take your walk with Christ to the next level, be sure to register as soon as possible. Spots fill up fast. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 to reserve your spot or visit backtothebible.ca.